All right. We have been going through the book of Acts as a church. And as we've been doing that, we've seen Jesus' kingdom uh, of shalom expanding, a kingdom of peace, of wholeness, of goodness. And we've seen the church uh, as the, the people that are cultivating that shalom, the people Jesus is working through to bring that about. And one thing we've seen, the major method that the church has used to spread Jesus' kingdom has been witness. Uh, it's the people that knew Jesus, uh, bearing witness to others of what they had seen and heard, just as Jesus had commanded them to do at the beginning of Acts. But one major question uh, we've gotten after a lot of the sermons we've done in this series, and that's this question, how exactly do we bear witness with our words? Uh, like the, what we see the apostles doing, we see Paul doing here in this passage, how do we do that? We know it's a huge part of us cultivating shalom in other people's lives, but how do we do it? Um, I think this question is especially pertinent when you look around and see many people calling themselves Christians doing this very poorly. Um, they might bear witness to the name of Jesus, but they do so in a way that would be totally foreign to Jesus himself or to the apostles and how they would have done it. I think of some, some uh, men who had come to UNC's college campus when I was a college student, when they would have a big sign, and it would say, have a list of people, it would say like adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, they're all sexual uh, kind of like names, um, all of you guys are going to hell. Um, and they wouldn't, they would just say that, that was the message, and they'd say, go carry on with your, with your day. Um, uh, I think of the person on the, on the, on the street, uh, sometimes that I've run into, kind of conducting themselves like a bad salesman, uh, randomly soliciting people, not, they don't ask you any questions, they say, hey, can I, can you give me a minute to talk you through this tract here, um, and maybe you'll become a Christian in this moment. Um, and when it's happened to me, I've, I've wanted to get a word in and say, no, actually, I am a Christian already, but you don't have, you don't have space to do that. They, they talk so fast and going through things, and eventually you might profess faith in Jesus again just to be able to go about, about your day. <laughs> like, okay. Um, I, I think of being invited to a party uh, one time and say, hey, we're having a party. Um, we'd love for you to come. It's going to be really fun. And then you get there and realize this isn't a party at all. This is a gospel presentation that was set up as a party um, for me, but I've been swindled, um, and now I'm hearing the gospel. Um, and in these cases, it's not what is being said, that's the problem, I love the gospel, um, but instead it's how it's being said. Um, and often in response to these um, harm, kind of harmful, potentially harmful uh, ways of going about witnessing, many of us might swing the pendulum the other way, and this is, I fall in this category, um, you might try and love and care for somebody over a long period of time, focusing on maybe your deeds of witness, which we talked about earlier in Acts, that you can witness via your deeds. Focusing on those more than your words, you might be hopefully building up to eventually talking to somebody about, about Jesus, um, but then that person moves, or um, you know, they, uh, the context you're seeing them in is no longer a thing, and uh, you never get a chance to mention Jesus at all. Um, they might have just thought, oh, I was just a really nice person that I was in relationship with. And so I think we can swing the pendulum the other way and forget that it's actually our deeds and our words that are really important in our witnessing to others. And our question is, how do we bear witness with our words uh, today? So in our passage, uh, Paul finds himself in, in Athens, and this is the intellectual center of the ancient world, kind of like a, a Harvard's campus or something today. Um, the city was peppered with physical idols all over the place. 
Um, even though uh, Paul was just waiting there for a little bit, seeing all of the idolatry makes him really sad, and he, and he has to start bearing witness about Jesus. And eventually he encounters some educated philosophers, uh, Epicureans and Stoics. Uh, these philosophers make fun of Paul, um, but they also want to hear what he has to say, so they take him to the Supreme Court of the ancient world, known as the Areopagus, uh, and they want to hear his new teaching during a meeting of this, of this court. So it's in this speech that I think Luke is giving us the answer of how we are to bear witness, especially to someone who doesn't know God or the Bible. Uh, most of the other speeches we've seen in Acts were to devout Jews. And so they looked a certain way, and those speeches looked a lot different than the speech you're about to see here. Um, here's the cool thing, is that the Epicureans and Stoics, uh, who are the audience here, are pretty similar to a non-Christian that you might encounter in America today in our culture. So the Epicureans were mostly materialists, meaning they didn't believe in anything meaningful besides the material, physical world they could see and touch in front of them. Uh, to them, a god or gods could have existed, but if they did, they were very removed. They didn't intervene in human affairs. They didn't need anything from us humans. Um, so there's no need to seek them or to fear any kind of judgment after your life. Um, instead, they would encourage people just to live peacefully and without pain. Um, I wonder if you know anybody today that might think kind of like that. Uh, Stoics, on the other hand, they stress reason as the main principle by which to live. Reason, or the, the, the logos, was inherent in all things in the universe, and, and one must live your life in accord with it. They weren't materialistic, but they were pantheistic, meaning they thought God was in all things and all people, uh, kind of like the world soul, like someone who might be spiritual but not religious today. Um, and so you, you may know somebody that actually is a, a real Stoic that would say they're a Stoic today, or somebody who might be a Stoic without saying, they may not name Stoicism, but, but kind of have that same view. Um, and then both of these groups in Athens, uh, Luke has a little funny joke here in verse 21. Um, both of them, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Um, so none of them, neither one was that concerned about what the real truth of life was. They were more concerned with what was new and exciting, what was on the cutting edge um, that they could maybe hear and be a part of. And so I wonder if you might know also someone like that today, too. So how are we to bear witness to these people, to our, our non-Christian neighbors like Paul is encountering here? Um, Paul does three moves that we're going to look at, which we can emulate uh, to bear witness in a godly way with our neighbors. And before I list these, I really want you to take a second and just think about somebody that you know that would say, I, I don't believe in God. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus. Think of a, an actual person in your life um, before we move forward. And if you don't know somebody, uh, imagine someone maybe from a, a TV show or a movie you've seen. I just want it to be a, a person with a story um, that you can think about. Um, and then if you're not uh, a Christian in here, if you're not, not yet a Christian, uh, then think about yourself, actually. Um, how you would want to be treated by a Christian who wanted to tell you something really important about God. Uh, what, what, would you, what would you want um, that experience to be like? So here's the three things that Paul, that Paul does here in this, in this speech. First one is you must listen to the image of God before you. You must affirm the image of God before you, and you must challenge the image of God before you. So Paul listens, affirms, and then challenges 
uh, the person, the people in front of them. So uh, before we dive into the first point, let's pray. Father, um, we come to you this morning uh, know, knowing that you've called us to a task, a task that is very scary for a lot of us in here that um, can, can often feel awkward, can feel, um, can maybe even um, change our relationship with people, and um, Lord, we're nervous to do that. And so, Lord, I know that you've equipped us in your word, and, and this passage is a big part of that, of, of how we're to do that in a way that's, that's actually effective, that actually gets your message across to people that need to hear it. Um, and so would you teach us this morning, Lord, from your word, how to do that um, the way Paul does it in this text. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we look at uh, the first point, I, I, I talk about image of God in each of these points. Um, and I use that phrase because Paul's method relies a lot on the other person being created in the image of God. This truth from Genesis that we saw in Genesis 2. Um, this means that the Athenians, despite their sin, that they have echoes of truth and longings in their lives that point them towards the true God. Uh, this is because they were designed for God. This is because they were descended from the Garden of Eden. Their great ancestor lived in the Garden of Eden. Um, Paul considers them in this sermon grasping for God in the dark. This is true, according to the Bible, of the person that you were thinking of, that you wanted to witness to. They are made in the image of God. So Paul is going to rely heavily on that with these points. So the, the first point is you must listen to the image of God before you. Um, so before we look at the content of the speech, I want to notice first the listening that Paul has done to understand the Athenians. First, uh, he's walked around the city and taken it all in. He's noticed things. Um, look in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So Paul took time to notice their city, their strong religiosity, their particular altars. Uh, second, you can't tell this in the English, but his Greek language is different than what he normally speaks in. He's using their local dialect, Attic, which Paul has learned uh, to converse with them during his time there. Third, his speech looks different than some other speeches because it's an elevated poetic style which fits the context. So the Supreme Court, with all these educated philosophers, he uses alliteration, which is where the first letter of a lot of the words are the same. He uses assonance, which is where that vowel, the vowel sounds are the same in a lot of places. Um, Paul has crafted a very Greek philosophical kind of speech um, for this occasion, for talking to these people. Lastly, he has taken a lot of time to read their books. Um, almost his entire speech is strung together quotes from Greek writings and Athenian philosophers. He echoes Epicureans in verse 25a, Stoic writings in verse 25b, another Stoic writing in verse 27. He also paraphrases Plato in verse 24 and 27, and then he directly quotes Greek poets in verse 28. Those, those quotes are not Bible verses. Um, those are actually quotes from two different poems to Zeus, one by Epimenides and the second by Eridus. And so this means, though the content of this speech sounds pretty similar to other, uh, other speeches in Acts, the content has been translated to be best understood by the Athenians because Paul has listened carefully to them. 
He's observed, asked questions, learned a dialect, studied literature, and he's able now to speak to them in their language, using their concepts, even using their own authorities to teach them about God. I once had a pastor who, when we would meet about a problem, he had this rule that I would talk for the first 55 minutes of the hour, and then he would talk for the last five minutes. The reason being is that he wanted to actually be helpful, he said, and felt that he could be more helpful in the last five minutes than anything he would say before that. And sure enough, uh, when we would meet, after hearing the complexities of my issue, the language and concepts I might have used to talk about that issue, the longings underneath for me, uh, the attempts to solve it that I've already tried, the ways God might be already working in it. After hearing all that, what he said in the last five minutes was way more impactful for me than what any kind of advice that I might get from somewhere else. He would use the words that I used to talk about the issue, and which made me feel super seen and known because I really was in those moments. And so you're looking at a speech Paul's giving that's in the last five minutes after weeks of listening that he's done. Paul even describes himself as becoming a Greek to the Greeks. He says, I become all things to all people that I might win some. Remember, Paul was originally a Pharisee, a Jew of the Jews, like the most Jewish kind of person he could be. And here now you see him speaking like a Greek, thinking like a Greek, Uh, using Greek concepts and and authorities so that he might lead Greeks to Jesus. And to become a Greek, he had to first listen really well. So think about, again, the person that you would like to witness to in your life. What do they believe about God, and why do they believe that? What foundational life experiences have really shaped their view of God? What people have influenced them most in their life? And what was it about those people that was so impactful for this person? What motivates that person to get out of bed in the morning? What does that person find most beautiful in the world? What do they fear most in the world? What unknowns do they still have in their life? What longings do they have that are still unmet? And I wonder what languages and concepts they would use to talk about all those things. If you haven't asked them any of those questions, this probably means you can't see the world from their eyes. You can't speak their language. And in most cases, it's going to be really hard to persuade someone to consider changing their entire worldview and trajectory of their lives without being able to talk to them in their language first. This is where that bad salesman on the street goes wrong. He didn't listen at all first, just focusing on what he was saying without reframing what he might say in the other person's story. And yes, I don't want to deny the Holy Spirit can do anything. Uh, This doesn't mean that you could give a totally cold gospel presentation to a bunch of strangers on the street and you might, someone might come to believe in Jesus through that. But that's not the norm of people coming to to faith in Christ. People come to faith in Christ because they're, they're led there by someone who really knows them, typically. More importantly, we bear witness to a God who sees a God who listens to our prayers, a God who knows us intimately before you were even born, a God who has your hairs numbered on your head. And it's fitting for us, like Paul, to get to know somebody to effectively bear witness to our God. So that's the first point, we must listen carefully. Second, we must affirm the image of God before us. 
Um, now let's look at the content. Um, look at how affirming Paul is of those he has first listened to. When he speaks, he doesn't start with what they've gotten wrong, but he actually starts with what they've gotten right. Uh, and this is where Paul differs from the guys uh, with the signs about hell on the college campus. So he starts with the affirmation. Uh, verse 22, men, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is a positive. He's saying, this is good. I affirm that. Um, then he quotes a lot of their texts. He's agreeing and affirming with those. He's not contradicting them. He says, Epicureans, I hear you say God does not need anything from us. Yes. Stoics, I hear you say that God gave to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And that he's not far from each of us. And amen. Your poets have said we are his offspring. In him we live, move, and have our being. Yes. You guys both don't like idols because of how irrational they are. And yes. He spends most of the speech not contradicting them, but actually affirming things that they already believe in now. Why does Paul see it fitting to affirm someone who's also very wrong about big things? How can he affirm someone who he says in other places is, is not in Christ, who are, are dead in their sin, are an enemy of God, who without faith can't please God? How could Paul possibly affirm uh, people like that? He can affirm them because biblically, despite all that, the Athenians are also created in the image of God. Paul says God's law is written on their hearts. They're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Therefore, despite all that sin, they have echoes of truth in their minds. They have right reasoning in lots of places. They have instincts and longings and assumptions that are true, that bubble out. And Paul is latching onto those things and bringing them to the surface. So his witness in evangelism is founded first on what they're getting right rather than what they're getting wrong. And he's building bridges to the image of God in them, bridges that he will then cross. It's like Paul sees himself dealing with someone with spiritual dementia, and he needs to find a point of connection to bring that person to a full remembrance of the truth. I saw a video of a bride on her wedding day, and her dad is there, and her dad has dementia, and he's supposed to walk her down the aisle. She's in her dress. He's all dressed up, but he, he doesn't remember anything. Um, and so she comes up to him and is saying, hey, um, dad, it's time to go, and he's not remembering. And what they do uh, in their family when he doesn't remember things is that they paint with them. So she doesn't say, she doesn't get mad, she doesn't say, why are you coming down the aisle with me? She goes, hey, dad, let's come over here and paint for a second. And he comes over and gets his paintbrush and, you know, starts painting, and, um, and then eventually you see it dawn on him, and he's like, oh, oh. And he says her name, um, her name is uh, Julia. Julia, you look so pretty. Oh my gosh, it's today. And she's like, it's right now. He's like, it's right now. And he stands up and uh, begins to walk her down the aisle. And so the Athenians are like that father. They're dressed for a wedding. They're sitting next to, to the daughter. They have no idea of any of it. They're in darkness. And like the daughter, Paul doesn't start with, I can't believe you're just sitting there all dressed up, not, not doing all the right things. How do you not know? He starts with, I noticed you like painting. Interesting. Come paint with me for a minute. I, you seem to be dressed up for a wedding. That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder why. You like reading these poets. Interesting. There's a lot of true things they're saying here, which might actually lead to some conclusions that are different than the ones that they led to. Paul is hoping that by affirming all these things first, the scales from their eyes might fall off and they might be able to see again. Oh, Paul, the wedding, of course. It's right here. It's been right here all along. So think about the non-Christian person that you would like to witness to. 
I wonder what you can affirm wholeheartedly about that person in their life. Do you ever catch them doing or saying image of God kinds of things? I'll give a few examples. Um, Francis Schaeffer was really good at this, a a founder of Labrie, a famous Christian uh, kind of apologist. And he once had a young couple who were in love staying at at Labrie, um, but they were decidedly materialistic in worldview, kind of like the Epicureans. Um, But Schaeffer, noticing how deeply they were in love and the beauty of that, he first listened to them and affirmed. He said, you know, I love how in love you guys are. I wonder how your worldview would make sense of what was happening between you in that love. And the male said, um, oh, it's, it's instincts from evolution uh, to procreate. That's what's going on. Chemicals in our brain to help our species. And Schaefer is like, really? Nothing more than that? <laughs> Let me read again that poem you wrote to her. This poem does not seem to see your love simply as instinct or chemicals. And then he looked at the female. <laughs> Are you satisfied with your fiancé's description of your love? <laughs> she wasn't too happy, as you can imagine. And she says, no, it sounds like it really cheapens it. And so the image of God in both of these people knew better than their worldview did. This couple actually became Christians through the conversation around their love. Because they were experiencing something that their worldview could not account for that the Christian, that the Song of Solomon could account way better for than um, the theory of, of evolution being the only thing that's ever leading to, to love between two people. And so they felt something divine, the very flame of Yahweh, the image of Christ's love for the church. At the height of their love, they knew this is something more than, than what our worldview was telling us. And so Schaefer just caught them doing image of God kinds of things and affirmed those things and then showed them how the Bible made better sense of that. So think again of the person that you would like to bear witness to. How might his or her image of God be showing? Could be their love for gardening or flowers or taking care of their lawn, showing their true calling as a cultivator of God's creation. Could be their deep love of music, a concern for justice in the world, their love of hospitality or cleanliness in their house, or their selfless love for their son or daughter or even just their favorite movie with a lot of gospel themes that leads them to tears. Where could you affirm the image of God in them? So that's first, listen to the image of God before us. Second point, affirm the image of God before us. And lastly, some of you might be squirming in your seat. What about their sin? Uh, What about their wrongness? Without God, we are corrupt in every part. Paul, you need to challenge these people, right? We need to challenge challenge people to, to, to be in Christ. And that's our last point. Um, this part is essential, and often I struggle with this, again, with that pendulum of, of trying to avoid the challenge. Um, but this is that's the third thing Paul does, is he challenges the image of God before him. And so Paul gives three challenges, really, in this speech based on the bridges that he has built through his listening and affirmation. He then crosses the bridge to, to challenge them. And the first one is this. Um, Athenians, God is not unknown, but he's known. Remember how Paul affirmed how religious they were in verse 22, and because he had seen an altar to an unknown God. And the story behind this altar was that there was a time of intense pestilence uh, where the Athenians' lives were on the line and they were sacrificing to all the gods they knew of to no avail. And so they sent for a wise man, Epimenides, to advise them, come and advise them of what to do. And he said, 
uh, you probably should sacrifice to an unknown God uh, that, um, you know, since there must be some other God you're not aware of, and maybe that God is the one in charge of this who could help. And so Paul, so they they do this, uh, they build this altar, sacrifice on it, and then actually the pestilence stops in that moment. And so they build a bunch of altars all around, altars to the unknown God, saying there's some God out there we don't know of that was in charge of this. Um, And Paul's challenge is, uh, verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So in other words, the God that you don't know about, who is in charge of pestilences, who also, by the way, is in charge of everything else, I do know that God. And he's, he's revealed himself to me and to, to a bunch of people to make himself known. We are his witnesses. So God is not unknown, but he is known. And this, I think, is a great challenge for our time, too. So many people would say, even Christians sometimes, no one really knows if God is real or not. We're all just kind of guessing, doing our best, grasping in the dark for something. Who are you to say otherwise? Paul is saying, you are someone to say otherwise, actually, because you have been called to be a witness of God to those who are actually in the dark. You can affirm, yes, it would be really hard for a limited human being working only off of our own reasoning to find out a bunch of stuff about the true God. And it would be arrogant to say you could do that. In fact, the only way we can know anything about God is if he himself came down and told us about himself in our language. We can only see in the dark if God himself came down and turned on the light for us. And that's what Christians, we are saying that we have experienced and that we're proclaiming that we know God not because we did anything, but because he did something. He came and told us about himself. So that's the first challenge is that God is not unknown, but he's known. The second challenge Paul gives them is God is not our creation, but our creator. Look in verse 29. Um, Being then God's offspring, as he said, as just your your poets just quoted, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Paul is saying, look at what you believe about God. If you are his offspring, meaning if he made you, then you making little idols... Uh, that are him, it makes no sense. He made you. You don't make him. And this applies to a physical idol, which these guys agreed with, by the way. Um, but it also subtly, he's, he's applying it to their philosopher coming up in their mind, some idea or imagination about what God should be like. I like to think he's really removed. Uh, you know, he doesn't have anything to do really with our life down here. I like to think of him as being in everything, in all people and in all things. I like to think of him as this little golden cow. Paul is saying all those are basically the same. You believe he made you, so it doesn't follow that you can make him however you want to make him. You are trying to make him in your image, but he made you in his image. And the true God does have real specific characteristics that no one can make up. He's revealed those to me, to Paul, that I might tell you what he's really like. And this, again, is a fitting challenge, I think, for our time, where a lot of people love to think of a God that looks a lot like them, who doesn't disagree with anything you already might be thinking, who asks, a lot of, asks only a little bit of them. In other words, a God made in their own image. Paul is saying, God is not your creation, but he's your creator. And the third challenge uh, is, is God is not on trial, but you are. 
Uh, look in verse 30. The, the, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So just imagine this scene. Paul, Paul is at a meeting of the Supreme Court who's hearing his case with an audience of people judging his speech and message to see if it's acceptable. And uh, these are people, by the way, who only love to leisurely hear something new and exciting for entertainment. And Paul is challenging them with this. God's not on trial right now, but you guys are. He is, he's overlooked your ignorance until now, but now that a witness has reached you, you must repent because he has appointed a judge, even given us a sign to confirm this judge by raising him from the dead. So repent, for judgment is coming. And this, again, like the other two challenges, is just a very fitting challenge for our time. And many of us, uh, me included, could be too afraid to mention this to the non-Christian we've been listening to or affirming so far. Um, if you're a non-Christian in here, we are nervous to talk to you about the repentance and judgment in hell. We don't want to be like the guys on the college campus with the signs, so we, want to, we would try and avoid mentioning repentance or judgment or hell altogether. But the problem is that these terms are all over Jesus' witness to people on his ministry on earth, and they're all over the apostles' witness uh, as well in Acts. Almost every speech Acts sermon has repentance and judgment in it. Um, they're an essential part of our witness. And so... Uh, God commands everyone to repent, and he has fixed a day on which to judge the world by a man he has appointed, and that's Jesus. But how we tell other people about that is really important. Remember, Paul listened well first. He already affirmed so many things before he gets to talking about God's judgment. So Paul's witness is just as serious about the affirmation as it is about telling hard truths. Again, unlike the guys on the college campus with the signs. But don't mistake that he does get to the hard truths. And remember how Jesus also talked about the hard truths that were shared clearly, but often with lament, with tears, with warnings. And so your neighbors at the right time, the person that you want to talk to about Jesus, they deserve to know what's at stake for them in their decision to follow Jesus. And Paul's third challenge is God is not on trial, but you are. And so think again of that person you'd like to witness to. Um, what challenge could you extend to them at this point? It may not be a well-worded truth bomb that Paul had here, um, though it might be. It may not be judgment yet, though it could be. Um, it could be asking someone if you could pray for them or for them to pray with you. It may be inviting someone to read a book of the Bible with you, to attend a church event, to come to your community group, to a Sunday morning service, or to explore Christianity more with you. It could be challenging them to go to counseling or to meet with a pastor regarding a deep personal issue that's kept them from God. Or it could be, if they're ready, a challenge to repent and to, to believe in Jesus for their, for their soul's sake, to receive Christ's love and forgiveness. So I wonder right now, what might be a good challenge that you could extend to the person that you're thinking of? So just to reiterate Paul's challenges were God's not on trial, but you are. God is not unknown, but he's known. And God is not our creator. God is not our creation, but our creator. So let me conclude with this. 
after this incredible speech, with all this labor behind it, look at how the Athenians received it in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. And Paul went out from their midst. So this should give great encouragement to you. Um, Even if you're the Apostle Paul himself, doing all kinds of weeks of research, uh, and doing these three steps perfectly, listening, affirming, um, you know, challenging in these beautiful ways, you might just get some mocking. And some people saying, oh, I'll, I'll hear you again about this. But also notice the last verse, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them, some, uh, some also believed. Uh, so, it's, it's cool. One of the people were on the Supreme Court, the Areopagite, Dionysus, was somebody who sat on that court. Um, but I bet this made it all worth it for Paul. Um, this is honestly a better response than what he gets most places. Uh, he, got, he says he got five times 40 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once pelted with stones. You all, we see him get arrested a lot. We see him running for his life a lot. So I wonder what motivates Paul to keep taking these steps with people, to keep listening, to keep affirming, to keep challenging, um, despite awkwardness, despite negative responses. And what can motivate us? The motivator, I think, is Jesus' pursuit of us. Jesus, the good shepherd, came for his lost sheep. And like Paul, his heart broke for us and for our, our idolatry. And then, remember, Jesus first listened well to the images of God before him. Think about how many questions did Jesus ask people during his ministry here on earth? He starts with a question almost every time. And he even demonstrated he can read people's thoughts. And he's still asking them lots of questions and hearing things that they're saying. He also, remember, spent a lot of time affirming, drawing out, and restoring the image of God and people. And then, don't mistake, he also spent a lot of time challenging them. Challenges that led to his eventual, his eventual torture and death. But lastly, this seeker of his sheep endured hell to win back those he had lost. And that example is what motivates Paul to continue through awkwardness and pain, bearing witness with words. And what can motivate us, I think, to bear witness with our words to our non-Christian friends Jesus did it for you, so you can turn around and do it for others. Let's pray. Father, um, this task you've given us uh, may feel like one of the hardest ones that we have to bear witness to others about you with words. Um, It is scary for us, Lord, uh, but we know that um, others did it to us to lead us to this place, whether it was our parents, our friends, our um, pastor, our mentor. and, and Lord, I pray that you would give us your spirit, that we would um, be able to walk in boldness and, and pointing others to you with, with the words you've given us to speak. Um, give us wisdom in doing that, Lord. Give us love. Give us the compassion that Paul had in this, in this text and the compassion, Jesus, that you had for us. May we feel that for others, and may that be so overwhelming that we can't help but talk about you, Lord. Um, we look forward to seeing the fruit you bear with our, with our meager attempts. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.